Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Michaeli Zanini. Michaeli, along with Gary Hamill of the London Business School, is the co-founder of Management MLab which works with leading edge firms and progressive practitioners to help them create tomorrow's new practices today. McKaylee and Hamill are also co-authors of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Humanocracy, which discusses the many ways in which top-down power structures and rule-choked management systems are crushing creativity and stifling initiative. McKaylee started his career as a graduate fellow at the Rand Corporation. He then spent a number of years at McKinsey, which is where we met, before co-founding MLab in 2009. He's written a number of articles for the Harvard Business Review, the Financial Times, McKinsey Quarterly, Fast Company, and Fortune, among others. He also publishes a video series with Fast Company called The New Human Movement, which features leading thinkers and doers who are reimagining work, management, and capitalism. McKaylee is a graduate of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and he earned a PhD in public policy analysis from Party Rand Graduate School. He lives and works in the Boston area. Michaeli, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Hey, JR. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So excited about this because I know you're doing some really interesting in the space of organizations and how they can adapt to the more modern world. So talk to us about MLab and the nature of the work that you're doing. MLab is a little outfit that Gary Hamill, who teaches at the London Business School, and I started in 2009. And you know, the idea is to create a little bit of an accelerator for new management practices. And it's built on the premise that management as a social technology, the tools and methods we use to accomplish things together that we can't do alone. And our ability to be productive as a species depends on our advancement in management technology. And we hardly ever think about management that way, but it is like it sets a little bit the perimeter we can get done together. And it's something that you can innovate upon. You know, most people take things like budgeting or turn on investment calculations or strategic planning as some sort of a given that they've always been there. But, you know, they were invented by people trying to solve problems 100 years ago. And our point of view is that, and we can maybe get into this a little bit later if you want, but that we are now on a flat part of the S-curve of management and innovation. And we need to kind of get on a new S-curve if we want to create more capable institutions. So we're devoting our professional lives to this cause. How do we get organizations to be fundamentally more capable by changing the way they're managed. And so we do research in the field, talking to companies that are making interesting advancements in this area. You know, we write about it in articles, books, and the like. And we work with companies to essentially act as laboratories for management innovation. So that's a little bit what we do. Yeah. How did you guys meet and how did you 
come to the idea of starting this back in 2009? Well, at the time, I was at McKinsey Company. I had been there for about five, six years. And in my prior life, I was public policy researcher at the Rand Corporation, which is a place of those where people do research for a living. Obviously, McKinsey isn't a think tank, although out of all the consulting firms, it's one that I think people with an interest in developing ideas have space to do that. So I've always found opportunities to do that. We're aligning myself with partners and directors, senior partners that were kind of ideas driven. And one of these partners, uh, Lenny Mendonca, basically suggested that I meet Gary, that McKinsey had this incipient partnership with Gary around this topic. And he said, well, why don't you just go work with him, help him out a quarter or two, you won't get any stupider as a result, and then we'll see what happens. And then a quarter or two became four quarters, five quarters, six quarters, and then eventually my secondment ended and I just switched and became full-time kind of co-founder with Gary on this. But it was through the McKinsey connection that I was able to strike up this uh, partnership with Gary. It's great that Lenny gave you that freedom. Yeah, I was very lucky to work and, and know him. Not to get too inside baseball, but it's people like him or people like Lil Brian and McKinsey yep. was also a very influential director who wrote tons of books and that I was able to stay at McKinsey because they allowed me to straddle the world of ideas and practice, which isn't usually that typical in a consulting firm. Apart from the two of you, what's the rest of the MLab look like? Are there more people? Is there an office? Or are you just all virtual? Yes, we're all virtual and we have a small team, including designers, web developers, and content editors and the like, because when we work with companies, one of the things we do is involve large groups of people in the problem solving. So for instance, let's say that a company wants to become more innovative, unlike a McKinsey or unlike a typical consulting firm, we have deployed a small team, drives the problem solving and the solutions, and then proposes the answers. What we do is we involve yeah, I mean, ideally everyone in the company, but if not like large swaths of the population in diagnosing what the barriers to innovation are, being very clear about what the roadblocks are, where we failed and why, and so on. And then through a process of staged kind of problem solving, and we can get into this if you'd like, you pose different questions or different, you tee up different principles. For instance, in the case of innovation, one of the principles for of an innovative company is being really open to new ideas, the new perspectives. And so the question you might pose to large groups of people around this topic is like, how might we become more open in how we do our strategy, how we allocate our resources, how we review our talent and the like. And the community then draw comes up with lots and lots of ideas on how do, they might do that, how they might change those management processes. And then these then eventually get experimented upon. But to, to enable this kind of like large scale, we call it crowd solving process, you need a platform. So more than consultants, we have developers who help us create a platform and in which we embed content that then allows large groups of people to, in a way, reinvent the core management operating system in a collaborative way. Your work and your writing make the point that many, most organizations are getting this wrong today, right? That they've got antiquated management systems. What's driving that? Yeah, well, it's a big question because you're right. So book, we talk about bureaucracy as being the standard operating model in most large companies. And you know, bureaucracy sounds like this kind of an anachronism, like horsepower or something that applies to like the government, but not to a company. But if you look at sort of how bureaucracy as an organizational model was specified, there's a hierarchy of positions, but big leaders appoint little leaders. Roles are formalized and quietly, clearly delineated. The way you get ahead is by getting promoted. You know, things work according to a fixed calendar. And so all those things mostly still apply. 
to most companies. Like, yeah, you could get a, if you could resurrect the CEO from the 1960s or 70s, they'd be amazed at some things that have changed, like the fact that information is so easily obtainable and supply chains are so global and efficient and so on. But some of the levers, many of the levers, you know, the way budgeting happens, the way investments take place and the way plans get enacted and so on, those things are still the same. The way you get ahead, the number of layers. So, and our premise is that model gives you some real benefits, but you got to recognize those. It gives you control. It gives you consistency. It gives you some sort of form of coordination and conformance. Like it minimizes variation. It allows you to be predictable and to have discipline, right? So that's good, but it also creates a ton of costs, right? You're just too slow to respond to things that are changing the environment. You're just driven towards incrementalism and just turning the crank and not necessarily making huge improvements or making innovation a real capability. And then it's also like a very dispiriting kind of environment where the people's ability to have agency, to have autonomy, to, to be entrepreneurial is highly constrained and circumscribed. So there are real costs and the costs are becoming bigger and bigger. You know, like in the 1920s and 30s, the name of the game was being big and being efficient. Things weren't changing that much. A lot of your workforce was illiterate and it was really scaled that brought you success, not so much being constantly innovative and dynamic. And so that has changed, obviously, as we were talking now in October, where we're in the midst of, well, we're still reeling from the pandemic. We're in the midst of a geopolitical crisis. There's so much that is uncertain in the macroeconomy. So the world is like moving so fast, right? And people are knowledge workers, as we call them, and they are skilled. They, They can be. So all that stuff has changed. Our organization have not. So then the question is, and in the book, we lay out like all those costs and examples of organizations that kind of stumbled because of this. Sorry, I'm sorry to give in this preamble, JR, but it's just to set the stage because then the question is, if a lot of organizations are stuck and they're paying like a tax, we call them the management tax, right. on this, why is this model so pervasive? And it's a very good question. We're still kind of not totally done in kind of trying to answer it, but I would say we, we lay out a few different things. First of all, there's still a sense that there are no no real alternatives. It's like what Churchill said about democracy. It's like the worst mode of governance aside from all the others. And so people might say, yeah, you know, bureaucracy has all these debilitating effects, but like, as opposed to what? And so there's the familiarity with alternative models of managing, especially large-scale enterprise in different ways. And so in the book, we talk about a lot of different alternatives. We have an example of Hire, which is the largest appliance maker in the world. They're based in China. They have operations all over the world. In the US, they own GE appliances. And they're basically operate China. Just take the mainland China operation. They have about 60,000 people, two layers of management. And people are organizing 4,000 micro enterprises, little entrepreneurial unit that contract with each other. And, and so are able to be quite independent and so on, but at the same time, also integrated so that the whole is more than some of the parts. Or another company we mentioned in the book is Bertzer, which is a home health services organization in the Netherlands, where they have 16,000 nurses organized in about 1,000 teams. These teams are totally autonomous, and there's no layer between these teams and the leadership, which is two people at the top of the organization. And yet, despite the fact that they're so flat and so disaggregated, they are they have the best patient scores, they have the best outcomes, they have great staff satisfaction. So, so one of the things you need to do is kind of open your eyes to alternatives and understand there is a different way you could manage. So, and I think that those alternatives are still not very well known. And so people don't have necessarily the confidence that there's an alternative. So that's one thing. We don't believe 
or don't have enough awareness that there are alternatives. That's one. Second, changing an organization that is highly, I mean, bureaucracy and the bureaucratic organizational model is highly integrated. So you can't just change one thing and then piecemeal and hope for like change to stick or to propagate. Right. You got to change a lot of things. And that's typically one of the failure modes when companies want to do something like, hey, I see Spotify, they're a very agile company. I want to be agile. So I'm going to do what Spotify does. One of the things that they do is they call people scrum masters or coaches. They don't call them managers. And they have these tribes and these other So you import like some things of these, what these companies do, but you don't necessarily change other aspects of the model. Or for instance, you might even train your leaders. You want leaders to be compassionate or empathetic or enabling in some way. So you, you train them to be different, but then they come back and the system is still like operating in the old way. And so within yeah. six months, they either quit or they snap back. So it's complicated, right? You can't just say, I'm going to wish a new organization in the next six months. It's something that takes a long time and the path is not certain. There is no cut and paste. There's no cookie cutter answer. The companies we mentioned in the book, they're all very different from each other. What's more similar are the principles underlying their model, as opposed to the practices that they use, right? To, to kind of embody those principles can be quite different from each other. So, so that's the second thing. So you're not aware of alternatives. Second thing is it's really complicated. And I guess two more factors is that I haven't really quantified the cost of bureaucracy. It seems like it's a nuisance or it's like, you know, something that is regrettable, but we don't really have a way to quantify efficiency. But, you know, the loss of effectiveness, the loss of innovation, right, the loss of flexibility, we don't really have any good metrics for that. So, like, mm -hmm. we go to the fight against bureaucracy with one hand tied behind our backs, right, because we can't necessarily prove it the way maybe the accounts can prove by consolidating, by centralizing, you can get more efficiency. So we don't have the right metrics where to think about the cost. And then the last thing, and maybe it's even the most important one, JR, it's almost like there's almost like a political issue here because the people that are at the helm of these organizations got there through the bureaucratic kind of maze. Right. And so, so now you're telling them, hey, you know what? You need to give up power. You need to have others take the lead. You don't have all the answers even though you're paid a lot of money. So the presumption is that you do, but let's be honest, you don't. There's only so much, you can be a smart guy but or a gal, but that's you're just one person. And so it's like telling LeBron James, who plays basketball for the Lakers, hey, LeBron, you're great at basketball, but we now want you to play volleyball. <laughs> a lot of people might say, well, you know what? I'll stick to basketball. Thank you very much. Sorry, the last factor I would say, and I'm sorry for the long answer, JR, but it's almost like, almost like an ideological reason. Like we are, we just believe that control is almost like the most important thing that an organization needs to deliver and conformance. And we kind of get the fact that it's also good to be responsive and, and innovative and creative, but control, like in a way, that's what we're programmed organizations to do. And so unless you change some of this like worldview, control is important. I love control. I think the important control, is, but it's a subtle trade-off. And by the way, sometimes there are better ways to get control. It's not just that freedom of control are always like against each other. But there's a sense that we want to be in control as individuals, but we also like to have others in control. And we like, we just think that you know, predictability is the name of the game. And so unless we change that, it's going to be hard for anything else to change. So there are lots of lots. So this is, as you can see, this is a pretty wicked challenge because it's not, mm. you know, there's not one thing that you just change that and then the system then flips to a new kind of new mode. So talk about the appliance company in more detail. So, I mean, it's Chinese firm, as you say, they own GE appliances. 
long history there, right? Not a new company, been around forever and ever. They operate in a supply chain where they're buying parts suppliers, they're delivering appliances through wholesale and retail distribution channels, right? How do they go from the old world to the new world in their micro teams structure that you talked about? How do they go from the old world to the new world in terms of the way that they look out to the rest of the world and their supply chain? I'm curious how they actually went through that transition because back to your point, it's complicated. Yeah, it is. And for them, it's a journey. It's not uh, right now, they have a model that looks like science fiction, I think, for, to most CEOs, but they started like as a pretty unremarkable municipally owned refrigerator company in this just town of called Qindao, which is halfway between Shanghai and Beijing on the coast, Shandong province. And the CEO who has recently retired, Zhang Rumin, took over in the 80s. And he basically, I would say that the current model basically is a product of an evolution that spanned over 15 years. And basically, he got to the point where in the 90s said, look, we want to compete internationally. There's certain things we need to do around quality and others that are important for us to do. So let's get that going. But then realized that to get to the next stage and be a global leader, they needed to create much more a much more entrepreneurial culture and an organization. And his vision was, and we heard this for the first time in 2010, I was working with Gary in Woodside, California. Gary had written a book called Future Management. Mm -hmm. Jean Grumin had read it. He came to talk to us because he had some thoughts and wanted to learn a little bit more about Gary seeking at the time. And, and he said to us, like, I want to create a company where everybody feels like their own CEO, which is kind of a pretty remarkable thing. I never heard that from a CEO before. Yeah. And so the idea was everybody has an opportunity to be an entrepreneur. So I'll tell you maybe just a little bit how they work today and now a little bit how they got there, but very quickly. So I mentioned they, they've disaggregated the company into microenterprises. Some of these are basically responsible for bringing a product to market, like a three-door refrigerator. There are you know, people putting all the pieces together, but then they are collaborating with other microenterprises that are more functional in nature. So you have the sales and marketing teams in the various regions of China. You know, design microenterprises that put the design together, get the components right, and so on. You have manufacturing microenterprises, you have services microenterprise, you have distribution. And so basically, when you want to put together HR, IT, and so on, when you want to put together a new product, you enter into contracts with all these different microenterprises. So you write a contract with, you put a bid out saying, we want to create this part or this kind of product. And then you get, because there are multiple microenterprises, for instance, around design. And you get different bids. So there's an internal market. And you pick the one that you feel has the best proposal for you. And once you enter into that agreement, then the agreement determines not only what the provider of that service does for you, but also the, how the benefits and the success gets shared. And so like, even if you're a support function or you're like in the back end, you have skin in the game because you're only going to get paid a bonus if that product does well in the marketplace. So even if you're an R&D, even if you're a factory, you have that market signal, right? Because typically in most companies, like once you put together the product, it's off your, you know, the weight off your shoulder. So what else's problem to sell it? In their case, everybody's motivated to do the right thing. And then the other thing that is really interesting, and I kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, is that there are multiple providers. So there's no like internal monopoly. It's not just manufacturing. It's not just design. And so like, if you're not internally competitive, you kind of go out of business. And so like, I always hear clients tell them, you know, especially in HR, and IT and so on talk about you know their internal customers, but like unless you you have the ability to fire your provider, they're not your customer. 
And so at a higher, you can do that. You can fire your internal providers. And if you don't like anybody inside, you could go outside. So they have this, this system. And then they have all sorts of ways for incubating new micro enterprises for new ideas inside and outside of the core and getting VC money. And we can talk about that if you'd like. And then tapping into this kind of open innovation ecosystem where if something they can't develop something on their own internally, they go out to bid the problem to this outside network of solvers and they get expertise that way. So, anyway, but so they have this crazy system which works. It has its limits. It hasn't always worked well. And one of the lessons from the higher model is that they've tried this many ways and they keep innovating and they keep trying new things and they hit dead ends, they hit the snags and, and they learn from that and they kind of improve it. For instance, they, their internal contracting initially was very, very administratively intensive and a source of friction. So they found ways to make that less so. So there's a whole like contracting app, which is really neat where they have some benchmarks around services and ways for the contracting to be much simpler. And they also, as I mentioned before, have created this joint accountability for market outcomes so that you're not just like arm's length contracting with an internal provider. You're all kind of in it together because in the end, like you're all going to get paid on whether the product does well or not. So like it's less than zero sum. Anyway, so they have this thing right now, but they started in a very humble way. What they started with was hey, can we get sales and marketing teams to be a little bit more autonomous? Can they set their own targets? So they started with areas of the business where maybe there was less integration, maybe where the voice of the customer market feedback was strongest and most immediate and tried to see whether can we get more autonomy there? And then they gained confidence. You know, they gave them like almost like a little like proto PNL, even though obviously they didn't control all those like backend functions, but they started, they tried to find like, well, how can we make it so that every single person feels like they have a little, little startup? And so they built from that and they've evolved it through trial and error and experimentation. So they're one of the, and one of the frustrating things about hire in a way for me, as someone who studies them is that, well, not only do I not speak Chinese, so everything needs to be translated, but also like every time I go there, they're doing something different. And so like whatever I wrote six months ago is no longer operational, but yeah, it, they, they're driven by this aspiration. Everybody is CEO, right? Zero the customer. Everybody needs to report to the customer, not a manager. So bold aspiration, and then very kind of gradual, constant experimentation of ways to get there by changing structure, by changing process. So that's nutshell how they do it. Revolutionary goals, kind of evolutionary ways to get there. A deliberate effort on innovating, back to what I was saying earlier, the management model of the company, not just the products. Yeah. And the business well, Fascinating. Model. I mean, particularly with the manufacturing company where you've got high capital costs and all those other things. You talked earlier about us being in sort of a flat part of the S-curve, right? Which in a way, I mean, here we are, as you say, sitting here in October of 2022, we've got geopolitical turmoil, financial markets are off, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we've got people, this sort of raging debate about the future of work and return to office. And you would think in the scheme of things that this would be a time when organizations would be absolutely hungry for ideas that might sort of break the norm of how things have worked. Are you seeing that in the last 12 to 18 months as we've emerged from the pandemic? I'm seeing some positive signs and maybe signs that are not so positive. On the positive side, the crisis has inevitably led to some decentralization and more dynamism because companies just had no choice. In a crisis, you know, power shifts to the periphery because the center just is overloaded. Just they, they can't process all the change. And so like people can take initiative can, you know, and we've seen amazing 
evidence of that in private sector, in the public sector as well, in the healthcare system, teams of doctors, nurses figuring out how best to treat patients. That's all amazing. I think also the other thing that has happened is that maybe there's more of an awareness of how much, given the fact that some people could be comfortable working in their pajamas at home and others had to kind of go to work and risk getting infected, maybe there's a greater appreciation for the fact that some work is not very good and we've made it worse and it's been crapified, if you can kind of pass that expression. And there's something we need to do to improve frontline work. It's not good for them. It's also not good for the company. I also feel like there's more awareness around just in general, the quality of workplace life. And so maybe the pandemic has kind of raised, again, awareness to the fact that there was this headline, McKinsey articles from saying back to the basics, CHRO kind of finally focusing or coming back to focusing on people which is like, okay, but like, what were they focusing on before? Isn't that what they're supposed to be doing? But maybe, you know, back to this notion of compliance and control and so on, maybe that other priorities. So yeah, so maybe we're more focused on people and the people dimension of work. On the other hand, we've seen this movie before. And one of the Mm. things I like history, I find management and business to be not as steeped in history as it should be because, and we talk a little bit about this in the book, you go back to what people were writing about the future of work in the 1950s and 60s. And you can come up with things that would be completely like cutting edge today. Yeah. The role of leadership, the fact the organization needs to be flat, the fact that their need is more horizontal and autonomous teams. Like, I mean, agile, literally, you can find people talking about agile without saying agile in the 1970s. And so, I mean, like, it's good that we're rediscovering it now, but then my worry is what do we do to make this stick and like Mm. make sure that this time is really different? Yeah. All right. And I'm not sure we have the ingredients in place because we'll see. I mean, you know, people have talked about the pandemic as being a great reset, but whether you agree with me or not, but to me, like in a way, yes, if you were like in leisure and hospitality, if you were carnival cruises, and, or Marriott, yeah, you were like yeah. in really difficult straits. But if you were like financial services company, if you were like an IT company, even retailers, like large retailers, you actually didn't do so badly. Maybe you were tested in some ways, but in other ways, your business model wasn't tested. You had this massive stimulus and very permissive monetary environment. You could just buy a bunch of companies, make a lot of CapEx investments and so on. So like, I wonder whether the crisis that is, I think I fear upon us, well, that will be the biggest test. Let's see what wash at the end of that kind of wave of disruption and dislocation, what actually sticks, right? Are the work from home people or the fully remote people going to be the ones that are laid off first, right? Are people that are working in Boise, Idaho going to be replaced by people who work in Bangalore? Mm. And you can even see like when it comes to things like engagement scores, like Gallup measures, or even questions around my company cares for my well-being. There was a surge during the pandemic up until 2021, but things are now back to where they were pre-pandemic. So I don't want to be like totally negative here. I think there's an opportunity for us to make real inroads, but we, I think, need to come up and we need to find ways to make some of these structural changes that I mentioned before around the hierarchy, around control and how it's distributed and measuring the the cost of bureaucracy and so on. If we want to then retain that, motivation and not just kind of go back to the old bad ways of doing things. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, I mean, the pandemic created a crisis, right? To your point earlier, there was a massive focus on people's mental health and well-being while they were working in isolation and companies earned a lot of 
credit for the way that they handled that situation. We've come out of that. And if you survived it as a company, right? A lot of, there were obviously a lot of companies that did not survive it because they didn't have the wherewithal to get through that period. But if you did, other than the fact that you're having a debate about how many days a week people need to be in the office, the day-to-day work is still pretty much the same. And so maybe we've blown an opportunity to have a big rethink of work. At the same time, I feel like everybody expects that there's some big change coming because we talk about the future of work. We talk about how hybrid has changed things. And at the same time, it doesn't feel like people have really figured out what it is yet. There's probably more of an openness to think about new things than there may have been before the pandemic, but nobody really at a macro level, isolated companies aside, really seems to have figured out what it is yet. We're a little bit stuck, I think, trying to determine what's the future look like. Yeah. Well, and you should, I've been struck, Harvard has celebrated its 100th birthday this year, and they put out like a book with some of the most interesting articles, but they also have online, they pulled a bunch of academics, I think mostly academics around what the next 100 years look like. Mm. And the impression I had was almost like people, I don't know if you remember, like, have you ever seen these pictures of trains, the early versions of trains, which, or was it automobile? No, it was buses. Sorry, buses. And so there was like car, basically, with like coaches, like they used to have horses. They're like kind of put to, stacked together and there was like a car pulling them forward. And that was yeah. like the future of transportation. It's almost similar. We're like, we're in this frame. All we can see is like the organization we have today, 10% different. And maybe it's a modality shift or maybe we have tokenized, whatever it is. And the impression I had was like, we're not really breaking the mold here, right? We're still in the same kind of managerial paradigm. And my partner, Gary Hamill, has often talked about a managerial ADD, ambition deficit disorder. And so maybe we're all a little bit culpable of that, that we just, I mean, I don't know if you remember during your days in consulting, JR, but one of the questions a CEO would often ask you, or a client would often ask you is like, who else has done that? Right. Or like, where do we stack against the others? Like, but you think about like the people at NASA who put out the rover that spent all that time on Mars. Who do they benchmark? Yeah. Like no one. They ask themselves, is this worthwhile doing? And so like, I just wish like corporate leaders just were a little bit bolder and more courageous in trying new things. And again, you don't have to demolish the old before you build the new. You can kind of evolve your way there a bit like the higher story I mentioned before, but having a little bit more of our ambition. Yeah. It's almost like that Peter Thiel tweet that said, you know, we dreamed of flying cars and we got 140 characters. We dreamed of dynamic interpretive organizations and all we got was like three days a week or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like modality shift. Okay. I'm sure that's good, but we can do more, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so very few of us are CEOs though, right? In control of a company's destiny. If you're a mid-level manager or an individual contributor, how do you kind of spark this movement? That's a good question because if you wait for the CEO to get it, you might have to wait a long time. And I think there are opportunities to start something lower in the organization. I mean, if you are someone who's a department head or functional head, has some budget, has some managerial supervisory responsibility, there's stuff you can do within your perimeter. I mean, there are things you can, yeah, of course, you'll have to adhere to policies and processes that are consistent across the company. But but just think about your, and we lay this out in the book, we have a set of things you can start to think about. Like, well, one of the things you should think about is like, how do I share my power. What are the things that I am doing right now that I can syndicate and involve others on, whether it's individuals or an entire team? 
is what can I do to involve them when it comes to planning? What can I do? Like maybe I need to sit into mental meetings or whatever. And can I send someone in my place with decision-making authority or with a real voice that represents me instead of me being the one that goes there? I mean, there's lots of things you can do to kind of share your power and multiply the leadership capacity of your team. So that's one thing. The other thing you can do, whether you're a manager or not, is to try to work, create a little bit of a horizontal coalition around a topic you might be passionate about. There's one of the things that has happened over the last several years is, you know, sustainability and even DEI and other topics like that have become really important set of companies. Often those efforts were started not by appointing sustainability officer. I mean, that often comes later, but it's people inside the company who are agitating for change, you know, creating a group of people that feels the same way, having a community, setting the agenda and making themselves heard. And yeah. just like you do it for sustainability, you can do it for other aspects of work. In the book, we have an example of this happening in the health service, actually, in England, which has its own, obviously, its own limitations, its own problems, and its big bureaucracy. But there is a story of Helen Bevan, how she was created a campaign called uh, Change Day, in which people would pledge one thing that they would do to improve the patient experience within the NHS. And it's something that they did without any permission. It was like a very simple website they put together. They put it out there and they expected a few thousand people to respond with their pledges. They, in the first time they did it, they got over 180,000 people. You know, like a pharmacist saying, I'm going to taste the medicine, pediatric medicines before giving them to children to make sure they taste good. Or we're going to... Um, have a new way of welcoming patients when they come into the hospital. So each person kind of created their own pledge. And so it created a big wave. And it was interesting that, and they did this for several years and ever increasing scale. And eventually the head of the NHS in England got on board and said, oh, this is a great initiative and so on. Had they yeah. asked that person before starting it, could we do this? They would have been shut down, but eventually they got on board. So again, maybe that's not quite the right approach for you, but it shows you that you can mobilize people and work horizontally as a, if you really commit to that. And it's better to do that, to just moan and complain about things not being great. Yeah. I mean, all of us, I guess, to some degree, irrespective of role, you have some control over the destiny of the company, right? You operate within a sphere, whether it's your own role or your team's role or a broader part of the organization. You do to your, you know, use the word agency earlier. I mean, you do have some agency in all of this, right? If you don't, that's a bigger issue. You know, with the nature of work you're in. Yeah. But yeah, the key is to like, in a way, and your agency may be quite small, but it's almost like, can you aggregate the power units across in a way that makes it really difficult for the higher ups to ignore? Can you create that activism? And now more than ever, you know, with social media and online technology, you can create these coalitions across the globe if you're a global company. So I do think that activism and being an entrepreneur is still a high-risk occupation in most companies, yep. but I think there's strength in numbers. Yes, definitely strength in numbers. So mindful of time, what's ahead for you in the next year or two and for MLab and the work that you're doing? Well, so I'm passionate about this challenge of upgrading the management kind of uh, capabilities of our institutions because I feel that it is a limiting factor to our ability to solve problems as a species. And so I still work with individual companies. I still write about their experiences we're right now learning about a pharma company. Hopefully we'll have an article coming out the next year or so that they are transforming and empowering people and getting into the warts of and the joys of all of that, right? Because it's it's not easy. And so the more we can kind of sh share stories of transformation, the better, right? Because one of the criticisms, which is I think to some extent valid of some of the examples we have in the book, not all of them, but some is 
that they were born with those genes or they had mm. the philosopher kick like Jean Ruming. And so like, yeah. what happens if my company isn't like that? Am I? So like showing that there is a path and laying that out. And that's one priority for me. And part of it is case studies and understanding what companies do. And hopefully from there, maybe ex extract some broader lessons. So that's one thing. The other one is just a more a broader view and trying to create a bit more of an awareness that this is a societal problem. Over-bureaucratization of our economy, of our institutions is the problem. It's not just a CEO's problem. And it's not even just the problem of, of the corporate sector. It's a problem of our health systems, of our scientific research institutions, of government. And the solutions may be different depending on the context, but I think there needs to be this you know, shared awareness. This is a worthwhile problem to solve, and we need to really commit to it collectively because yeah. you solve this one company at a time. So, so I'm trying yeah. to agitate for that, you know, write and interview people, and hopefully that will become a bigger part of what I do over the next couple of years. Yeah. Irrespective of the, whether there's a financial cost of bureaucracy, right? To me, it's a tragedy of sorts that Gallup's been reporting for decades that 30% of people are engaged in their work. And that is a really disheartening statistic. And it's been that way for so many years. And so to me, that's the opportunity, right? I mean, what you really want is for people to feel a greater sense of engagement, right? That gets them up in the morning, excited about what they're doing professionally and not just doing it because it's a job and gives them an income and the work to live kind of construct. So that's the opportunity yep. in the long run. It's the opportunity to, I mean, I was reading Recently, I've been digging into the literature on scientific research in the NIH, the National Institute of Health, which distributes $30 billion a year for scientific research and how it has become much more conservative, much more risk averse, much more bureaucratic. Right. Researchers are spending all this time writing proposals and updating people on milestones for speculative research. And you wonder, like, what is the cost of like that money not being spent properly by brilliant people who are applying? So, what is the cost of Alzheimer's drugs not reaching the market for like? 10 years right. or be 10 years or cancer treatments. One other example, this is a completely different field, but in the Department of Defense and defense spending, in the US is behind the curve on hypersonic missiles. Just one right. quick example, even though that technology was invented by the US and the, the early kind of designs were American. And one of the reasons for that is because we've become, the whole process of, of developing new systems become completely risk averse, where like prototyping is like something really do much of, and you don't want to fail because if you fail, it's like a mark on your career, success of your program. And they're just wild stories about how, like in the 60s, they would run hundreds of tests on new missile pro uh, they were developing and failure was expected and actually in a way celebrated. And now they're running four or five tests spaced uh, by years between one and the other. And there's like this like complete fear that if the test goes badly. And so like, there's um, like this reset we need to have around our priorities as institutions. And I think it's like what you said before, because you end up wanting to have more engaged people. The way you get more engaged people is by giving them the opportunity to be more entrepreneurial, to take calculated risks, right? To be driven by a passion that they have, right? And that then creates more innovation. And then because more ideas bubble up, no, not all of them work, but some of them will. Right. And so on. And then eventually an organization that is has that innovation advantage then becomes more resilient because it can respond more quickly. So it's almost nested, right? So even though the book is called called Humanocracy, and I really very sensitive and very passionate about improving the lives of people at work, I come at it almost like from a strategy perspective. Like the reason why we want people to be engaged is because we want organizations to be more performing. 
Right. You know? And so you kind of have to look at it both. Like engagement sucks and we need to improve that. But the way we improve that is through creating a work environment where they can be mentor and that then creates greater capability and more productivity. So which would be a win-win, right? Yeah, you would hope, right? That you mentioned the word stuck, and I echo that 100%. We're stuck in this kind of suboptimal yeah. kind of equilibrium. And hopefully what's happening around us will disrupt things enough that we can land on a, on a higher, better one. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, it's been a good discussion. We didn't even get to your, your broader career background, which I think is a first for this show. So we'll have to do a part two at some point in the future. Okay. So, but anyway, thanks. Certainly thought provoking. Great to catch up. I learned a lot more about the kind of work you've been doing since you left McKinsey. So I enjoyed that and appreciate your time. Thank you, JR. It was a pleasure. Yeah. All right. Great. Have a good day. I'd like to thank McKaylee for joining me today and for discussing the groundbreaking and thought provoking work he's doing on organizational dynamics. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular insights, you can become a Pathwise member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter, follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.